As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid. Conversations about connecting and communicating. Welcome to a preview of Season 19, which begins next week. In this preview, Graham and I will introduce you to some of the fascinating people you'll be meeting, and we'll give you a taste of their stories. And they they really are fascinating, aren't they, Graham? They certainly are, and we'll be previewing five of the upcoming episodes now. Uh, The rest of the season we'll be recording in the next few weeks. Premiering in mid-December, we have an episode about a tiny spacecraft that piggybacked on the giant Artemis I rocket that NASA launched just the other week. That little robot is going to literally sail to an asteroid, but its designer hopes it will also be the first step towards giant spaceships propelled by immense sails that can take humans to the stars. Later in the season, you'll be talking with a woman whose insights into how babies learn about the world and now helping artificial intelligence learn about the world and get a little more intelligent. We have the amazing untold story of the six women who programmed the first modern computer 75 years ago, the giant ENIAC machine that was 80 feet long and 8 feet tall, won't exactly fit on your lap. There's an episode on the incredible world of sounds nature uses to communicate, a world that we humans have been shut out from until just recently. And there's a whole show on your favourite animals, the microscopic tardigrades, nature's ultimate survivalists. But first... But first, I get to talk with Melissa McCarthy and Ben Falcone. They act together, they write together, he directs her in movies and streaming series, and they're married. They're extremely successful, but I wondered if all these joint activities ever get in the way of one another. Or are they able to work so closely together because they both have a background in one of my favorite forms of theater? You know what I want to know more about? You both are such a great team at so many things, writing, making movies together, acting. I'm interested to know how you do it. For instance, how much of an influence improv is on all those aspects of your lives? I would say pretty enormous, right? I I would say in everything. I... I, th- I think that, you know, I, th- I think people have a perception of improv sometimes being, you know, you just, anything goes and yes is no and up is down, but it's when you really use it. And we, we both went through the groundlings uh, school in Los Angeles and you really learn that you have to abide by the story and the rules of the world, but then to say something or do something spontaneous that fits into that world is really what improvising is. So we get the cameras in the right place and my mouth works and his mouth works and the <laughs> works, which is all a crapshoot. You really truly get something spontaneous. And I think when the audience sees that, it's exciting. And it's very, it is the essence of collaboration. Yeah. That's so much what I hear from 
great musicians when we talk about how they prepare for a concert. And then when the time comes, they're so well prepared that then they can take off in directions they didn't expect to go, but always within the parameters. Always. It's always always still on the roadmap, but it is kind of funny sometimes, Ben, I'll say like, I, I prepare as if you know, I get, my life depends on it or the whole world. And then the day of, I'm like, I think I'm going to say something different. And he's yeah. like, but you're, the <laughs> we, way you study for it. We rewrote the line 500 <laughs> times to get it exactly what you wanted to say <laughs> once. And she's like, oh, this is dead wrong. And I'm like, or I say it once and time. I think, well, we have that. Let yes. me give yeah, well, let's try. That let's try it the way we wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> he does have to remind me of that sometimes. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a good idea, too. <laughs> How, how far back does that go? You you met in an improv class, right? I, did sparks fly during an improv? <laughs> <laughs> the fact that, we, you know, you, you are not presenting your most attractive self in a comedy troupe, an improvising troupe. You know, everyone's trying to be the weirdest, the most awful. So the fact that we both were like, attracted to each other is kind of amazing. I can picture your first date where he says, that's not who I thought you were at all. I want that other one. I think he's still saying that. <laughs> but I, we sat next to each other the first day and um, we found out we were, you know, coincidentally both from Illinois. Huh. I had gone to college in his small town and we just hit it off kind of from the very first second. Everyone was so loud and crazy, including myself, you know, you're in this class for the first time, you're, you're nervous and you're pushing too hard. And then Ben got up there and was the quietest, calmest, and he made everybody lean forward to listen. Mm. It wasn't funny at all, (laughs) but it was weird. (laughs) Well, that's the thing about preparing for improv. The fun, sometimes the most fun, I think, is just because there's spontaneity. And that spontaneity makes you laugh rather than coming up with It's not jokes. a lie. Yes. Yeah, it's yes. not. I never think of it as jokes. Also setting up, setting up the other person when you really have a team mm-hmm. that works together. If you're really, if your main job is listening to the other person instead of trying to prepare your line, because I think that never really works. And speaking of improvising, perhaps no one improvises as much as we all did when we were babies. Psychologist Alison Gopnik's been studying how babies learn about the world. And they do it, she says, by constantly trying stuff out and seeing if it works. Lately, she's been taking what she's learned from babies to help make artificial intelligence systems work better. Here's Alison. And one of the things that people in computer science talk about is a contrast between exploration and exploitation. And the idea is if you have a system, it's trying to learn. It's trying to, say, figure out what the best solution to a problem is. Um, one thing that you can do is you could make little changes to the solutions that you already have and then try and see if they make you do better. Another thing that you could do is you could really bounce around, explore lots and lots of different possibilities, try things that look crazy and odd and spend all your time experimenting and doing things and just for the sake of seeing how they come out. Um, and if you have ever had a two-year-old, you will already have a sense of which one of those just sounds like which one of those sounds like your two-year-old. But it turns out there's an intrinsic trade-off between these two ways of solving problems. Um, so you can have the kind of exploit method, which is try and find something that's a good enough solution pretty quickly and implement it and make it work. Or you could have this explore approach, which is 
just try a whole lot of things. And some of them might seem really weird and crazy, but you'll find out something, you'll learn something. Um, and of course, the problem with that second approach is that while you're doing all that exploration and experimentation, you're not getting resources. You're not exploding. So you need somebody else to take care of you during that time when you're, uh, when you're just exploring. But the advantage is if you spend especially an early uh, part of your life exploring, then you'll end up with much better, more flexible, more robust uh, solution sets in adult, especially if you're in a, an environment that's changing a lot, that's kind of unpredictable. So you're much better off being able to think of lots of possibilities early on uh, to be able to deal with a changing world, which of course is exactly the thing that we humans are, are best at doing and seem to be evolved to do. So Alison Gopnik's idea is to make AI systems learn more like babies learn. It turns out, I mean, the great reason why we've seen so many advances in AI is if you just let the machine give it the data and just say, okay, this is a cat, this is a dog, this is a cat, this is a dog, or just predict the next word that's going to come after this word, and I'm going to tell you, are you were you right or were you wrong? It turns out that those pretty simple learning techniques can end up giving you systems that are quite powerful. But the problem is that those systems aren't very good at generalizing. They're not very good at applying what they know to something new. Um, something I've said is it's kind of like these poor little AIs have super helicopter parents in the form of the programmers. And so these sort of super helicopter programmers are saying every minute, okay, you're doing better. No, now you're doing worse. You should, you're getting closer to what I want you to do. And as you might expect, what you end up with are systems that are really, really good at doing the things they were trained to do, but, you know not so good at figuring out how they should do their laundry when they go to college um, or how they should do something, uh, how do they should do something that's, uh, how they should do something that's really different. And of course, if we wanted really intelligent, um, if we wanted really intelligent systems, we'd want them to be able to generalize. We'd want them to be able to plunk them into a new environment and get them to do something uh, different. And it turns out in in fact, that doing things like building curiosity into the systems, especially early, or giving the systems a chance to play, especially early, actually seems to be one of the things that makes them better at generalizing and more robust and more adaptable um, after, after, afterwards. So getting them to be more like children, getting them to explore, getting them to try and figure things out for themselves, um, actually really does seem to make them better. The nice thing about being alive is that as long as it lasts, there's always something more to be curious about. For instance, if you think you've heard everything, but you haven't heard about the tiny, teeny tardigrade, listen to my conversation with Thomas Boothby. He knows all about these microscopic animals that look like miniature bears. In fact, they're also called water bears. They don't look like bears to me, but they are cute in an ugly sort of way. And I had a lot of questions for them because I find them so fascinating. They can survive extreme heat and cold, doses of radiation that would kill you and me many times over. They can even survive the vacuum of outer space. And yet, as strange as they are, they seem to be everywhere. I asked them at one point to list some of the places where you can find tardigrades. It would be almost faster to list where you don't find them, right? Which is almost nowhere because <laughs> tardigrades have been found on every continent, including Antarctica. Um, you find them at the bottom of the ocean. They've been found at the tops of the Himalayas. You know, you'll find them in very dry places like, like deserts. 
but also, you know, in, in, in wet places. Um, primarily, we find them in, in forests on moss and lichen because these are very kind of wet uh, substrates. Um, and as their name implies, the, the water bear needs a thin layer of hydrating water to be active. Um, but despite being found in all these kind of crazy, remote, distant lands, uh, if you have a microscope and you go in your backyard and pick up some moss and, and look at it, you, you would probably find some tardigrades just in your backyard as well. So they're really quite cosmopolitan. But what about those environments that are so much more hostile than my backyard? The vacuum of space, radiation, extreme heat. How do they do it? Our best explanation for how tardigrades are able to survive, say, being in the vacuum of space or being exposed to thousands of times as much radiation as they would ever experience in nature is that they've probably evolved the ability to do this through a process called cross tolerance. And what that means is that by evolving to tolerate a stress that is present here on earth, let's say drying out, that as a byproduct, they're also able to survive some other stresses. Ah, I see. And yeah. this sort of starts to make more sense when you think about, you know, what happens when you dry a cell out versus what happens when you irradiate a cell with, with high levels of radiation. And so, for example, when you dry a cell out, many things go wrong. But one of the things that goes wrong is the DNA, the genetic material inside of the cell is broken up into many little pieces. And so the tardigrades need a very efficient way to take all their DNA and stitch it back together if they're going to be able to survive drying out. I'm interested to know how we think we can use some of their extraordinary abilities to survive. How can we make use of that? Yeah, so I think that's a really great question. Um, and here in the lab, we're, you know, we're very interested in the fundamental biology of, you know, what just makes a tardigrade tick. But then, of course, we want to think about how we can take what we learn about this and, and help humanity with some of, you know, society's most, most pressing issues. And so some ideas that we have there that we're working on um, revolve around applying tricks tardigrades use to, say, stabilize their biological material in their cells when they dry out and applying that to, say, pharmaceuticals, right? Mm. So many pharmaceuticals are made up of biological components. So think about, you know, Pfizer's RNA COVID vaccine, for example. Mm -hmm. That's made up of a biological molecule called RNA, which is a very fragile molecule. You may have heard that, you know, the Pfizer vaccine had to be kept at negative 80 degrees. Mm. So this is way colder than, like, your or my freezer is, right? Our freezers get down to about negative 20 degrees. But if we can take the same tricks that tardigrades use when they dry out to stabilize their RNA without refrigeration, without freezers, without any electricity, just in a dry state, and if we can apply those same tricks to, say, stabilizing an RNA-based vaccine, then we get rid of the need for these negative 80 freezers to keep the vaccine intact we make it cheaper here in the U.S. and in other developed countries, but we also make these medicines accessible to people in remote or developing parts of the world. 
One of the eye-opening guests we have. I think you mean, I think you mean ear-opening. Ear-opening, ear right? She's ear-opening. It's Karen Bacher, and she told me about the symphony of sound that nature is playing all the time, and that we just can't hear. These sounds are being made by animals, by plants, even by the earth itself. But they're at frequencies that are either too high or too low for us to hear them. Compared with our cousins on the tree of life, humans are relatively poor listeners. A lot of the sound of nature happens in the high ultrasonic at frequencies too high for us to hear. So that's the realm of bats and dolphins and some whales and many rodents and even some of our primate cousins like tarsiers. At the mm. other end, below the low end of our hearing range, is the infrasound. Those, those are long, slow sound waves that are so powerful they can travel through soil and stone, even buildings. That is the realm of elephants and whales, but also thunder and tornadoes, calving glaciers make infrasound. Even the planet itself, the a planet has a heartbeat that is made by ocean waves crashing over continental shelves. And mm. if you could hear that, it would literally sound like the drumming heartbeat of our planet. Animals can hear many of these sounds, but we cannot. Alan, I know you were blown away to find that plants make sounds and use them to communicate, but my favourite of all the sounds that Karen Backer talks about in her new book, Sounds of Life, is the sound that coral reefs make. Who knew? In... The case of coral reefs, coral emits a very, very uh, fine ultrasound in a narrow band of frequencies, and the coral tend to do that more at night and more on the full moon. It's well known in science that coral reefs spawn on the full moon. They're highly, we don't know why, but they're highly seasonally attuned, and these mass spawning events that are like great underwater um you know, fireworks. They're full of color and these mass spawning events where millions of coral larvae are released and they're washed out into the ocean. Now, the assumption was because coral larvae are microscopic blobs, basically, with no arms, legs, or ears, the assumption was for a long time, they just float around, hapless little things pushed around by the wind, the waves, the currents, and eventually they get pushed back to a reef somewhere and they settle. However, scientists have recently done experiments that demonstrate that coral larvae can hear the sound of healthy reefs. They distinguish between the sound of healthy and unhealthy reefs. A couple of researchers in England, Steve Simpson and Tim Gordon, have been working on the Great Barrier Reef for years. We all know about the massive degradation of coral reefs that's so tragic worldwide, partly due to climate change. Um, what they did is they put speakers on degraded reefs and played the sounds of healthy reefs attracting curious fish and coral larvae to the reefs, encouraging them to settle, and accelerating the recovery of degraded coral reefs. So music therapy, or acoustic enrichment as they call it, works works pretty well. It's not going to save all of the world's coral reefs, but what it could do is be another tool in the toolkit for triage. Scientists are out there right now trying to you know, conserve dozens or hundreds of coral reefs to make sure a few survive. The world's biggest reef restoration project in the world in Indonesia is now using this music therapy, this acoustic enrichment, and it's, it's something very positive for the reefs. Just a week or so back, NASA finally launched its giant rocket intended to take people back to the moon. 
piggybacking on this first test flight was a bunch of little shoebox-sized satellites. One of them carried the hopes of NASA engineer Les Johnson. And what's amazing about his miniature spaceship is that it's going to rendezvous with an asteroid by sailing there, propelled by photons from the sun. Here's Les. I work at a rocket center where we have people dealing with, with rocket engines that produce a million pounds of thrust. And uh, my, my spacecraft produces, you know, like thousands of a pound. <laughs> but it's constant. It's constant. Uh, to, give, to give listeners an idea, um, sunlight, which is, of course, made of photons, these photons have momentum. And as they reflect from the sail, they push on it. But it's not much. If you were to go out in the middle of uh, two football fields, in the middle of the day, bright sunny sky, sun directly overhead, low humidity, and you were to measure the push from sun uh, from the sun on two football fields of area, it would it would be roughly the same as the force you feel on your hand if you're holding a quarter and a penny. So it's not much, but it's constant. And the beauty of that is it's the classic tortoise and hare. If you take a small spacecraft and you put a sail in it or you use the same volume to put the best rocket and rocket fuel in it that we have, and you have a race and you say, go, the rocket's going to take off and, and leave the sail standing there, but the rocket's going to run out of fuel very quickly, and then it's just going to coast at whatever speed it reached. And the sail will start moving faster and faster and faster from the constant acceleration, and in a few weeks or months, we'll pass the rocket and, and leave it in our, in our dust, as it were, and, and keep going. So anywhere within the orbit of Mars, there's, there's enough sunlight to get a, a useful thrust from sunlight. It's, it's just amazing. But you're going to go out there, check out the asteroid, and get some scientific data. But your sights are set on a far bigger mission. At some point, you're going to turn this into a trip to our closest neighbors among the stars, what would be Proxima Centauri or Alpha Centauri, and, and take a look at their planets? Well, that's, that's my vision. I don't know that I'll be, long, I'll be living long enough to actually see that happen. <laughs> uh, but, but really, uh, that's, that's my vision. When, uh, at working it, I have to give a caveat here. Uh, we've been talking about my work at NASA, and I do work for NASA. But when I start talking about my vision for where we want to go in future centuries, I'm really speaking for myself, not for the agency, because NASA doesn't have any plans to go to right. Proxima Centauri uh, anytime soon. Right, so I, right. I have to make that clear to anyone's listening. But no, that's my vision. That's my dream. I, I started reading science fiction when I was in elementary school and read some pretty amazing stories about uh, interstellar travel using light sails, solar sails, laser-driven sails uh, when I was in high school and college. Uh, kept me going in my physics studies, and in my career about 20 years ago, I was offered the opportunity to start working on solar sails for much nearer-term missions. But what really motivates me is that I think these are the first steps to the stars, and that it'll be a, a technological descendant of the sail that launches on Artemis One that will eventually send our first robotic probe by Proxima Centauri. So that that's what excites me about what we're doing. It's It's good stuff in the near term, but uh, I'm dreaming. <laughs> In fact, Les Johnson's dreams go a lot farther even than sending robots to the stars. I think it was Arthur C. Clarke or one of the other early science fiction writers said, you know, the Earth is the, 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 the basket with which, you know, in which we grew up, and we need to go find other baskets to put our eggs in and not just this one, because we know from geologic history that there have been huge catastrophes here on the planet that have endangered life in general. 
And uh, we may be doing things that engender life in, in specific right now with some of our environmental issues that I think we have to get our arms around and fix. And I'm certain we will before we go to the stars. But life is too precious and intelligent life is too precious to leave it all in one place. And, and I think we really need to spread it far and wide as long as we do it in a way that respects other life if we find it. It does come across. And I'm thinking of your answer where you, I think it was in a job interview, you were asked to describe in one paragraph what your own personal aspirations were. Tell me about that. That was part of my day job at NASA. We were uh, in kind of a management training because when you run a project, I may not be a, a manager of a staff of people, but I'm managing engineers and scientists to work toward a common goal. And one of the things they asked us to do in this workshop was to, uh, to, to write down what our professional goal, what do we want to accomplish in our career? And I, I respect a lot of folks that have different views of what they want to do in their career and make of their professional life. But for me, when I was asked to, to retro, retrospectively consider that, my answer was this, and, and that is that when the first uh, settlement, a successful settlement on a planet circling another star, when the historians there are writing the books of their history of how that came to be, that my work on solar sails or other things that I've worked on in my professional career be at least a footnote in that history book. I don't need a paragraph. I don't need a chapter. I'll be happy with a little end note, asterisk, or footnote that references something I did. And that, that's my goal. I won't see it in my lifetime, but I'm hoping one of my descendants will look back and say, yeah, that was my great, 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 great grandfather. Les brings up a good point about history, you know, the way, the way it can connect us to pioneers of the past, to see ourselves in them and maybe even be inspired by them. But what do you do when history just drops those pioneers out of the picture? Because, after all, they were only women. What our guest Kathy Kleiman did was dig and dig until she found the story of six women who changed our lives they programmed the first-ever electronic computer, making way for the whole field of computer programming. But until Kathy Kleiman rescued them from obscurity, it was as though they had never existed. I was taking a lot of computer, a number of computer science courses when I was an undergraduate. And initially, when I started taking these computer science courses, which were programming courses, there were women and male, there were male and women students. But the when I got to the advanced courses, it was almost all men, both faculty and students. And, and that was fine. Everybody was wonderful. But I wondered about women in computing. Uh, there are two famous women in computing, Lady Ada Lovelace in the 19th century, who worked with Charles Babbage and thought through some of the concepts of communicating a human problem to, in that case, an electromechanical computer. And um Captain, later Rear Admiral Grace Hopper in the U.S. Navy in the 20th century. But that's one woman a century in computing, and that did not mm. make me feel like I had many prospects in computing. So I, I really wanted to find women in computing. Were there other women? And I took a course, a seminar in American women's history, and I had to write a paper at the end of that seminar, a long paper. And I wanted to write about women in computing. And so it was a good impetus to 
go looking. And in the Encyclopedia of Computer Science, in the secondary sources, I didn't find any more names of women, but I found an incredible picture of the ENIAC taken six months after the war ends. And it's a, it's a picture of how big the ENIAC was, and it has people dwarfed in the picture. And there were six people in the picture, and two of them are women. And I thought, wait a second, who are the women? But the only people in the captions were the two men in the middle, Dr. John Mockley and Jay Presper Eckert, the co-inventors, who absolutely deserve to be in the captions. But I, I really wondered who the women were. And so I looked and I found more pictures of ENIAC, and there were more women in those pictures. And now I thought, this is incredible. And I went to my professor and asked who the women were. The professor sent me to the director of the Computer History Museum, which was brand new at the time, and it was in Boston. Now it's huge and it's out in Silicon Valley. And the director of the, of the Computer History Museum told me that the women were refrigerator ladies. And I didn't know what a refrigerator <laughs> lady was. What, what does that mean? <laughs> she said... Um, the, the black and white pictures we were looking at from 1946 reminded her of the black and white commercials on television, on the early television, of the women models opening the Frigidaire with a flourish. And so basically she was telling me they were models <laughs> and that I should stop asking silly questions. But of course, Kathy Kleiman didn't stop asking questions. And one of the women she found was a young Irish immigrant named Kay McNulty. She was one of a much larger group of women who, during the war, had been calculating the trajectories of shells fired from howitzers. Confronting the huge ENIAC machine for the first time, Kay and the other five women chosen to learn how to operate it were asked if they could program the computer to calculate trajectories. Here's a clip from an interview with Kay McNulty, recorded in 1977. In the fall of 1945, the ENIAC was already pretty much constructed. As a matter of fact, it was all the panels were up. Uh, some of the parts were not quite uh, finished. I mean, the divider square router was not in operation, but otherwise everything else was. Then we were told we had to learn how to operate this machine. Well, how do you go about that? Somebody from Moore School, I just don't remember just who the person was, uh, gave us a whole stack of blueprints. And these were the wiring diagrams for all the panels. And we, they said, here, you can figure out how the machine works and then figure out how to program it. Well, <laughs> this was uh, a little bit hard to do, knowing nothing about anything. So Dr. Burks at that time was one of the people assigned to explain to us how the various uh, parts of the computer worked, how, the, how an accumulator worked. Well, once you knew how an accumulator worked, you could pretty well be able to trace the other circuits for yourself and figure this thing out. So uh, we then uh, proceeded to program a trajectory to, to go onto this machine. And we had barely begun to uh, think that we had enough knowledge of the machine to program a trajectory when we were told that two people were coming from Los Alamos to put a problem on the machine. And Fran and I were asked to help these two people from Los Alamos to put their problem on the machine. Right, just figure out how to tell this machine to calculate nuclear fission and call us in the morning. Interestingly, tracking down these pioneering women was a source of inspiration for Kathy herself, as her career took her from practicing law to helping establish governance for the entire Internet. All of this wound up putting me... Um, 
gave me a front seat to how we govern the internet. And I became part of the group that founded ICANN, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, which creates the rules and kind of oversees the internet infrastructure. We kind of call it the roads and the bridges and the street signs of the internet. We try to keep it all going. And now there are over 4 billion people online on the internet. And it's been incredible to watch the internet's growth and play a small part in it. It's kind of amazing that you're part of a project that got all the countries of the world to agree on one thing. That sounds unique. One world, one internet. But of course, it all hooks back to the ENIAC programmers, because when I was a young attorney, I would walk into the rooms of all men and wonder a little bit whether I should be here, whether it was the young inventors of the internet, the 20-somethings, or the older intellectual property attorneys, also male, and I'd wonder whether I should be there. And I would actually talk to Kay and Jean and Betty, and they're like, of course you belong there. And so I had the best role models of all, and the best mentors. So season 19 looks like another collection of conversations with some of the most fascinating people in the world. I hope you'll join us. And I'd like to mention that just yesterday you had a wonderful conversation with the actor Pamela Adlon that we'll be posting later in the season. And in just a couple of weeks, we'll have a very timely episode with a woman who has insights into the mess that social media's gotten itself into, including the Musk mess at Twitter. And don't forget... Next week, Alan talks with Melissa McCarthy and her husband, Ben Falcone. See you then. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support so you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.